You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, November 15, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Previously in 1 Samuel, David, anointed king and, and not yet appointed to the throne, is on the run. He has been on the run now for a little while as a fugitive from King Saul, and he's going to be on the run for the rest of our time together in 1 Samuel. And so far, we've watched him on his journey make quite a few stops. He's been in the Philistine town of Gath. He's fled from there to the caves of Adullam. He went down to Moab. He found himself and his his band of misfits and his family in an undesignated stronghold that we were told about. But then he received word from the Lord through a prophet to go to Judah, and so he did, and he finds himself now in the forest of Hereth. Meanwhile, as David is trying to keep safe from the the maniacal reality of Saul's anger towards him, Saul's paranoia about David has driven him to new lows. Saul ordered last week the high priest and his entire house to be murdered, and then he stood by as Doeg the Edomite, Saul's henchman at this point, doesn't simply fulfill the command of the king, but goes above and beyond and, and murders the entire town, the entire city of Nob. Saul just stood there as, as Doeg escalated his sin a hundredfold. But neither Saul nor Doeg, we saw last week, knew that the high priest's son, Abiathar, had escaped the slaughter in Nob and fled to David, where David received him and assured him that with him, the anointed one, with David, he would find safekeeping. And so now David and his his band of misfits, which include a, a prophet of the Lord from Gad, and now even a priest, David and his new growing core are together in the forest. Sounds a bit like Robin Hood. I don't know if it's wrong to say that, but singing in my head, someone's skipping through the forest. I'm not sure who it is, but they're all there in the forest of Hereth. And so as we pick up the story now in chapter 23, the first six verses are are kind of giving us an overlay in a sense of what was going on with David and his people while Saul and Doeg were seeing the town, the city of Nob, destroyed. It's a bit like a story or a movie that would say, meanwhile, over here in the forest, while this was going on over here in Nob, that's what happens in chapter 23. So let's see what it says. Verse 1, they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floor. So here's the situation that's happening. Keilah is an Israelite town at this point that's right on the border of what was Philistine territory. It was just a few miles south of that cave of Adullam, that system of strongholds that they had been. And the Philistines are raiding the threshing floors, ruining the economy, and the very existence of the people of Keilah is being threatened. As they would plant and harvest grain, they would take it to the threshing floors at harvest, they would separate the wheat from the chaff, and the Philistines would swoop in like locusts and take what had been harvested that which was the subsistence of the people. Now, before we jump into verse 2 and see what happens right here, I want you to look down really quick at verse 6. Verse 6 kind of is a, is a in, 
the ending of this little scenario, it's kind of a four-year information verse that's going to help us understand what's about to happen. Verse 6 says, When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, that was the high priest that had been killed, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, an ephod was a linen garment that all of the priests wore. But Abiathar's dad, the high priest, his ephod was a little more elaborate than everyone else. Uh, amongst all the things that differentiated the high priest's ephod from all of the rest of the priests, one of the things the high priest had on his chest piece was a place to hold what were known as the umim and the thumim. Great study for you at some point during this week. And go and look up in a Bible dictionary or, or, or in a Bible encyclopedia what the umim and the thumim are and how they're used in the Old Testament. But the umim and the thumim were instruments that God had given to the high priest to discern his will. They would use the umim and thumim and receive answers from the Lord on behalf of God for the people. So through Saul's sin, God has now provided David not only with a prophet to speak God's word, but a priest who has with him the divine means of discerning the will of God. So back to verse 2. It's going to help make sense of what happens. Verse 2, David's heard the news of the Philistines. And so therefore David inquires of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. And so when news reached Saul about David, we saw last week, Saul threw a pity party and turned to Doeg to execute his anger. When news reaches David that he has to make a decision about, he turns to the Lord. And believe it or not, if you've been with us throughout the story so far, this is actually the first time in 1 Samuel that we have any record of direct communication between David and God. Remember, Saul's not receiving any more words from the Lord through the prophet or the priest or any other divinely appointed means, but it's not happening that way for David. But David isn't alone in this decision, is he? Look at verse 3. David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Like we already left the strongholds after the Lord gave you direction to go and we followed. We're no longer hiding in the caves. Now we're out in the forest. We're a bit more vulnerable than we were already. And I don't know how smart it is now for us to go try to take on the army of the Philistines as well. It reminded me all week as I was thinking about it, about how many times Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem would very clearly remind his disciples, I've got to get there. And the writers would say Jesus would set his face like a flint to get to Jerusalem. And nearly every time Jesus would say, we're going to Jerusalem and here's what's going to happen, they'd be like, ah, I don't know about that. I'm not sure that's a great idea. That's what David's men were feeling here. So in verse 4, David inquires of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. I love this on the surface level. I mean, David chose in the moment to not assert his will. He chose not to demand his own way. He didn't look at everyone there in the forest and say, wait a minute, you came to me. You came and found me when you were in distress. I'm saying we're going to go do this, now let's go do it. No, David, 
takes the concern of those that he has been appointed to lead and he takes it to the Lord. That, that, that my friends, is Christian Leadership 101. At work, in the home, even in the church, leading people is, is not about your dynamic personality. It's not like we've seen with Saul finding the right appeal to worldly gain or any kind of manner of coercion to get people to do what you want. It's simply grounded in the plain truth and confidence in God's word. So David takes the concerns back to the Lord. And I love the picture and the principle that God gives us here in this moment. The picture is simply this. David is now receiving direction from God through his appointed priest. Friends, did you realize that you and I have an even greater privilege today than David did then? Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us that you and I have a great high priest, the truer and greater high priest. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says that because we have him, we can come to the throne of grace and find grace. We can find help at just the right time. Verse 5, David and his men, having received this word from the Lord through the priest, they obeyed. And so it says, David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Here's the timeless principle in the story. We just have to stop and look at it. Obedience to God's commands always springs from trust in God's promises. God told David to go and do something that would ordinarily, on the surface, looking at it like a human, seem terrifying. Take your bunch of distressed, indebted, doubting people on the run from King Saul and all of his armies, take them down now to do battle against the armies of the Philistines. That would ordinarily be a terrifying instruction. And if it was only just a command, if that's all it was, it would be overwhelming. It would be burdensome. It would be scary. But the promise of God changes everything. Go down there, David, for I will give them into your hand. You see, if the promise of God is true, then the command that God gives isn't reckless. The promise becomes the grace-driven motivation for obedience to the command. Say it in another way. All of the imperatives of God in his word, all of the things that God clearly delineates that you and I are to do, always flow out of what are known as his indicatives, what he has already done, who he is, and on this side of the cross, who we are by his grace. One theologian said it this way, every imperative of Scripture, what we, to do, what we are to do for God, always rests on the indicative, who we are in our relationship with God. And the order can't be reversed. Another said, grace is the essence of theology, and gratitude is the essence of ethics. Once we know who we are because of what he has done, the commands of Scripture begin to make sense. All the way back into Exodus chapter 20, when God gives his people the law, he starts it off this way. I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of slavery into Egypt. Therefore, and he delivers what we know as the Ten Commandments. 
Even when you open up the New Testament, Paul writes his famous letter to the church in Rome, and Romans chapter 12, verse 1 begins this way, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The rest of the letter from chapter 12 through 16 are lists, ongoing means of imperatives that we are to do in light of God's mercies. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul expounded God's mercies to us in the gospel through his son. What we are called to do as Christians flows out of what God has done for us in Christ. You can see it all over Paul's letters. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, I therefore urge you brothers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays out the manner in which we have been called and what God has done for us in Christ. So in chapters 4 through 6, he lays out then in light of that what we are to do. Friends, obedience to God's commands always springs from trust in God's promises. If you and I reverse the order, we will forever be enrolled in programs and strategies for trying to reach the victorious life or whatever the phrasing is for this day and age because we're constantly believing in our heart that the promise of God is held out until we fulfill certain conditions or obey certain commands. It's not the way it works. Obedience springs from trust in his promises. David believed the promise of God, and therefore he and his men did what God commanded in spite of how terrifying it might have seemed on the surface. And Keilah was delivered. So while Saul was allowing the murder of the priests in the city of Nob, David was saving Keilah from the Philistines. That was the very thing God said Saul was to do as king, to defeat the Philistines. But Saul has become a destroyer now of even God's people. David, through the grace and command of God, has become their deliverer. God's word for David is a lamp unto his feet, he would later say, a light unto his path. But now the, the scene is going to switch, and we're, we're going to see this play out a little bit more, but the scene's going to switch. Look at verse 7. Now it was told to Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So the news that Saul has been waiting for his network is out there trying to figure out where David is, what David is doing, what's his movements, where he might be. The news he has been waiting for has come, and it sounds even better than he could have even imagined. David has run straight into a dead end. He has sought help and refuge in a place with walls and bars. And there's a bitter irony there in verse 7 if you catch it. God has clearly given the Philistines into David's hand. But now Saul is giving God credit for giving David into his hand. Saul thinks God is on his side in this. It's crazy. So verse 8, Saul summons all the people to war. To go down to Keilah. To besiege David and his men. So now Saul has summoned his men to go and fight into Keilah. Just like the Philistines had just done. This is who Saul has become. But verse 9 says that David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. 
And so he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And David's network of intelligence seems to be at least as good as Saul's. And he finds out he's being threatened again. And so again, David goes to the Lord. In verse 10, David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said he will come down. Did you hear the two big threats David was worried about? Was Saul going to come to Keilah and destroy the people? Or are the people going to turn me over to Saul? Well, God answered the first, didn't he? Well, verse 12 tells us that David repeats his second question because that, that might have been what was most pressing on his heart, if you think about it. David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. I mean, notice just for a moment, like a human, no one lays any blame here on the people of Keilah. But if you think about it, David just delivered them from the Philistines. And now God tells him they're all the more willing to deliver him over to Saul. Somehow, the, the fear of Saul and his reign was greater in the mind and the hearts of the people of Keilah than the gratitude to David for delivering them from the Philistines. That's all too human, isn't it? The king, the head of the state, has taken all of his power in issuing all of his authority to rain down destruction on the people of God. They may have probably have heard of Nob. They may have heard of what Saul's done. Now the, the government and its rulers, man, they might threaten the well-being of God's people. There's a word in here for us today. The fear of Saul in the hearts of the people of Keilah was greater than their gratitude for what God had done for them through David. So verse 13, David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into Saul's hand. Again, God's word proved to be a lamp for David that would guide him. This time, his word to David guides him out of danger and into safety. Just before, his word to David took him into what would have been apparent danger, that he might deliver God's people. And friends, I just want us to take a moment as we read the story to at least consider that it's not so much about the mechanics of how God spoke to David that are of first importance. People always ask questions about this when it comes to how God speaks to his people, especially in the Old Testament, with the appointed means that he has given the priest and the prophet and the umim and the thumim. And it's not really of first importance to figure out exactly how that worked. What's of first importance is the fact that he does indeed speak. 
He does indeed guide. You know, one of the most frequently asked questions we'll ever get in ministry is, how do I, or how do we now, where we are, discern God's direction, God's will, God's intent for our life? I get it. David had the priest. He had a prophet. He had the umim. He had the thum. You ask a question, you get a yes, you get a no. It's not that simple for me now, is it? My friends, countless books have been written over the decades on how to discern and understand God's will. And I personally recommend different ones all the time. I love Bruce Waltke's book, Finding the Will of God. I love Sinclair Ferguson's book, Discovering God's Will. Kevin DeYoung wrote a great book called Just Do Something. Great books. But for our sake and for our time, let me just synthesize some of the wisdom from some of these resources and how you and I, as we read these stories, consider how this same God still speaks, still directs, still guides, and we can discern how he is leading. The first thing in the the wisdom that we have of God's word for how to discern his intent in particular situations is often to always ask ourselves, is the situation, is the question, is the opportunity, is what we're trying to find wisdom about, is it something the Bible prohibits? Is it something the Bible clearly prohibits us from pursuing or engaging in? Or is it something the Bible clearly commands us to actually engage in, to be a part of? That's always the big E on the eye chart for where we start. But second, this is where it gets to be more where the questions come. Is what we're considering the option before us? Is it something that we would say is wise and beneficial according to biblical principles? You see, even if the the decision we're trying to make, the options that are in front of us, are something the Bible clearly does not prohibit, it may still be something we need to pass on. Maybe you're considering a a new house or a new job. Well, you have to wonder, will this house or, or will this job move me too far away from family and friends in the church? Will the requirements of the job keep me from investing my time in my family and my neighbors and what God is doing in a place like this? Maybe you're considering a potential spouse. Does that man or does that woman have a real abiding love for Jesus? Maybe there are particular purchases you're thinking about making. And they're not forbidden in God's word. But you have to ask yourself, is this purchase reasonable given my resources and my desire to support what God is doing throughout the world in the work of the gospel? Will this decision, even if it's not forbidden in Scripture, will it weaken my confidence in God? Ferguson writes in in his book, it's possible to make choices which eventually will tend to squeeze out spiritual energy, to commit ourselves to things which, however legitimate in general terms, will eventually become the dominating and driving force in our life. Will it be wise and beneficial according to biblical principles? Thirdly, they all would say we need to figure out or at least take into consideration what effect our decision will have on others. I mean, this is where the issues of liberty come in. There are things that we are permitted to do in Scripture that at certain times and in certain seasons may not be wise for us to do, and our liberty to pursue the thing that is in front of us should always be guided by our sense of responsibility and love for others. 
So while we might be motivated in a decision by our own profit or our own comfort, God's word challenges us to consider the well-being of others in the decisions we're making. Right? And that's not an exhaustive guide to discerning these things, but it gives us steps forward in how now with a sure and better word that God has given us here, you and I as we face decisions that we're making can understand that this same God still speaks and he still directs. And we're reminded even in these very simple encouragements that, man, we need to be immersed and surrendered to God's word if we're going to hear his voice. It was Walkie that would say in his book, the chief need that we have is an increased familiarity and sensitivity to the wisdom of God's word. Now here's the thing before we move on. Sometimes we want answers that God simply hasn't promised to provide. Right? Do, should I be a family practice doctor or should I go into cardiology? Do I join the army or do I join the Navy? Do I marry Ginny or do I marry Janet? Well, if both are followers of Jesus, you're free to marry the one you're most naturally compatible with and attracted to. What matters is that according to the wisdom of God, you obey his directives for how a husband and a wife love each other. Right, friends, no umim and thumim necessary. We have a more sure word now than David did by God's grace. And so as you look back at the story, you can see that God has been leading David. And David has then been leading the men who are with him based on God's word. And God's word has been delivering David from harm. Much in the same way that as you and I listen to and obey God's word, we find ourselves delivered from much spiritual harm in our own lives. I mean, who here would not say, as you look back on your life as a follower of Jesus, that listening to and obeying God's word has spared you from so many pains in life? Or you look back on your life as decades continue to roll and you look back on your, your experiences and you go, if I had just listened to God's word in that situation, how much pain would I have been spared? Like David, God's word guides us and in its guidance it rescues us from the foolishness and pain of sin. But there's more. There's more to the blessing of God's word here in this story. We've got to keep going. I'd love to stay there for a while, but we've got to keep going. Verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. We're told that twice. David's now in southern Judah, about 12 miles away from Keilah, south. He's in the wilderness. It's a very important picture throughout the biblical story. The wilderness is a great descriptor for David's life that's to come. And we're to understand as David is now in the wilderness here south of the land, that he's finding himself at, at what to this point is probably in a, in a human level, a, a personal low point. He has no home, we've been told, to lay his head on. He's on the run consistently trying to avoid someone that he has served with nobility and righteousness who only seeks to take his life. He's now been betrayed by the people he risked his life in order to deliver according to God's word. Over and over again, you find David in his Psalms asking the Lord in the wilderness, how long, O oh Lord? How long is this going to go? 
So let me ask you this morning as we continue David's story, do you know anything of the feeling of being so weary in body and soul that that your grip on God's promises, your grip on the truths of who God is, your palms have gotten a little sweaty and your grip's gotten a little slippery? If you know anything of that feeling, then you can get a sense of where David is here in the story. He's in the wilderness of Ziph. And verse 16 says, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh. Saul can't find David anywhere, but Jonathan, his son, can. Which is crazy when you just consider all the movement that David has been making. But here's been one of the most astounding things for me in this whole story this week. Let's just listen. Verse 16, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and he strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Verse 18 says, the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Now, they'll never see each other again on this earth. But I couldn't get past this week. Verse 16, especially the second part. David in the wilderness. How long, O Lord, is this going to be? And Jonathan and Gibeah and the palace leaves to go strengthen his friend's hand in the Lord. David's grip on God's promises was weakening. And therefore his friend came and strengthened his hand. I just want to consider these two verses for just a few minutes. The writer of 1 Samuel tells us very clearly that Jonathan rose and went to David at Horesh. Jonathan had to make an intentional decision to get up from his place of security, to get up from his place of comfort, to get up from his place at the palace, and to make himself vulnerable. He had to leave that place in Gibeah and head to the wilderness, the height of discomfort, to be with his friend. Because sometimes that's what friendship requires. His friend was faltering. His grip was weakening. And so Jonathan took the initiative. And I couldn't help but think, and can you imagine the difference that it would make at Redemption Hill if each of us who called this place home woke up in the morning and made an intentional plan to strengthen someone's hand in the Lord today? If you actually built this intention into your daily life, if you woke up and asked yourself, whose hand might you be able to strengthen today in the Lord or this week? Let me tell you, friends, with new mandates seeming to come every week with Impending lockdowns always on the horizon, not knowing how everyday life is going to change for all of us, but for some who find themselves very much in a place similar to David's wilderness, it's going to be all the more important that we, as God's people, make it part of our intentionality to strengthen one another's hands in the Lord in the coming days and weeks. Jonathan rose and went to David at Horash, but got to think about it like a human 
Jonathan chose and made a decision to put what was best for himself and his own interests aside to focus on what was needed for his friend. I mean, it was his relationship with David that's caused so much tension between him and his dad. It's this man David out there in the wilderness that he is going to risk again to go and strengthen. It's this man David who is taking away from Jonathan all of his human career aspirations. Jonathan was supposed to be the next one on the throne. But Jonathan seems to have given his well-being and his future over to the Lord. And therefore, in this moment, he can make an intentional decision to see to the needs of his friend. It sounds so much like what Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. This was alive and well in Jonathan's heart. And as we read the story and, and consider what was happening here between David and Jonathan, I couldn't help but be reminded that when we see David being strengthened by Jonathan, we, we see that no one, it doesn't matter how long you have been following the Lord, how deep your spiritual roots grow, no one ever grows beyond the need for having friends strengthen your hand in God. David was clearly the greater when it came to Jonathan. We've seen it over and over again. But as one writer said, if you think you're beyond the need for daily exhortation in the fight of faith, then probably your heart has already fallen prey to the deceitfulness of sin. No one is ever so strong as to not need at times their heart and their hand to be strengthened in the Lord. And no one regardless of how strong or mature, is above being strengthened in the grace of God by anyone else. But most importantly, when you consider what's happening here, the strength that Jonathan gives and the strength that you and I have to give to one another, this strength is not strength that comes in ourselves, it's strength in God. Jonathan didn't make the way to the wilderness to give David a pep talk. He didn't take his time in his journey to consider how Jonathan then could stir David up in his own self-esteem, in his own sense of accomplishments, of his abilities. He didn't strengthen David in David. He didn't try to stoke a greater sense of self-sufficiency in David's heart. He strengthened his hand in the promises of God. You shall be king over Israel. Friends, this strength that we have to offer one another, this strength that we have in the more sure word that God has given us, the word that speaks of his character, the word that speaks of his promises, the word that speaks of his grace, the word that speaks of his strength, the word that speaks of his eternality, we have a more sure word. And the strength that we have to give one another, the, the ways that we can strengthen one another's hands in the Lord is the utter difference between every other kind of self-help group or any other kind of relationship you can see on the face of the earth. No one's written about this better, in my opinion, than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
Bonhoeffer wrote, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. He needs his brother and his sister as a man and a woman, bearer and proclaiming the divine word of salvation. And that clarifies the goal of all Christian relationship, to meet one another as bringers of the message of good news. Jonathan came to David, and he came to help David, and he helped him by putting his trembling and weakening hand into the steady hand of God. There's no safer place for David to be than there. This is why, as you go back and read it this week, Jonathan coming to David and saying, do not fear, that's not insensitive, that's not a platitude, that's not Jonathan not knowing what to say. When we strengthen one another in the realities of God, when we strengthen one another's hands in the Lord, do not fear becomes full of meaning. It's not empty. It's the fruit of having a stronger grip on the character and the promises of God. See, what David heard from Jonathan began to eclipse everything that David could see with his own eyes. Where the people of Keilah, the threat of Saul was greater than gratitude in what God has done through David here now, in what Jonathan has, has spoken to David, in the strength that Jonathan has given David, the promises of God are now looming larger than the threat of Saul. Friends, David, in the wilderness, this man that we've been following for weeks now, he needed help to persevere. He needed to keep believing what God had said and then acting on it. And we're no different in this. Friends, God has ordained that we help each other fight the fight of faith day by day until the end. Hebrews chapter 3, we go back to it all the time. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have shared in Christ if we hold our first confidence firm to the end. I don't care who you are and how long you follow Jesus. At some point and in some season, your grip on his promises is going to get weak. And God has set it up that you and I are to be his means of grace to help one another to strengthen our grip on that which was our first confidence, the writer says. Lest the deceitfulness of sin set in and our hearts grow cold and hard. Friends, having people in your life is one of God's appointed means of grace for your perseverance and your endurance in the faith. This is why we value things like community around here, redemptional communities so much. They play an important role in our Christian life. But here's the thing, don't hear me the wrong way. You don't have to be in one to be a member. You don't have to be in one to be a Christian. But you do need to have people in your life who can help to strengthen your hand. If you don't, you are missing one of God's means of grace that could indeed prove dangerous to your soul, lest you fall prey to the deceitfulness of sin and your heart grow cold and hard and like the frog in the kettle, you don't even realize it. 
I'm not sure what you thought the value of God's word was when you came in this morning. I mean, there are so many voices that we get to choose to listen to today. But just this far in the story, God's word through his appointed priest has directed David's steps to victory, protected David from destruction, and through his friend now strengthened David's soul when weary and in despair. And maybe you haven't realized it yet. I'm not sure how far, how long you've been following Jesus. Maybe you haven't realized it yet, but even in times of distress, and maybe there is no Jonathan right around you, no cadre of friends ready to strengthen your hand in the Lord, you don't have to fret. Because God's sure and better word about himself reminds us that we have at our side an ever-present friend in Jesus who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and offer grace to help in our time of need. One who promised to never leave us or forsake us. So you and I can persevere by leaning all that we are into his saving grace. You know, many heroes of the faith have written and spoken clearly by the depth of friendship they have with Jesus. Andrew Bonner wrote in his journal of a certain wooded area where he would go to be strengthened through fellowship and prayer with Christ. He named it his Wood of Ziff. Bonner in one of his journals wrote this, God has often strengthened my hands, my divine Jonathan meeting me right there in the woods. Jonathan Edwards on his deathbed called out for Jesus of Nazareth, my true, never-failing friend. The Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4, said when he was on trial before Caesar, no one came to stand by me, all deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Friends, this same Jesus, our truer and greater friend, who left his place of safety, and security with the Father, to come into our world of sin and hardship, who considered our needs and not only brought the words of salvation and strength, but willingly died in our place for our sins to set us free and save us. He is our friend. And so it's no wonder that for decades the church has sung, what a friend we have in Jesus. All of our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege we have to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what a peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. We can take it to the Lord in prayer. Can you find a friend so faithful? Who will all your sorrows share? Jesus knows your every weakness. You can take it to the Lord in prayer. Let me pray for us this morning as we respond to the Lord. Father, I think so many of us get caught up in 
feeling pressured to know certain things about you, I know the temptation in my own heart. Making sure I get everything ordered and straight about who you are, that I forget that in your love, you serve as a friend unlike anyone else we can imagine. Lord, this morning, I, I, and I want for everyone else who's listening to know in the depths of our being what it is to have you as a true and greater friend whose word protects, whose word guides, whose word delivers, and whose word strengthens. That voice and that relationship we know in every situation we can always count on. Father, you know this morning the obstacles in our heart to trusting you in this way. And so I ask this morning that you would do that miracle by your Holy Spirit, that you would remove the obstacles in our heart that stand in our way, that you would exalt your Son to a place of glory in our lives, that we would know what it is to be comforted, strengthened, protected, guided, and loved by you. We ask this morning that you would do that in his name for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.